Hallelujah. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hallelujah. Well, join me in prayer right now, if you would. Father, thank you for this beautiful evening. Now, once again, we can return after last year's shutdown because of the virus. Here we are gathered again in your presence. Here we are lifting holy hands up to you. Here we are singing praises. Here we are eager, Lord, to give you thanks for what you took upon yourself in order that we could be saved. Lord, here we are to give. And here we are, Lord, to receive. And here we are, Lord, at the close of this service to worship you and remember as we take the dinner that you told us to take until you come again. So, Father, I pray for everyone that is here. I pray for all of those that are online, whether Facebook or YouTube tonight. God, they are with us in spirit. And I'm asking you in the precious and the holy name of Jesus Christ, God, would you meet with us and strengthen us in our appreciation, not only for Calvary, but in why you did what you did. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, I know you can't hug anybody's neck, but just turn around and give them an air high five or something and let them know you're so glad to see them tonight. And to all of you at home, I'm so glad that you're watching with us online this evening as well. God bless you. You can be seated. Man, I have a whole new appreciation for being able to gather into worship in church. I have a whole new appreciation for being able to gather on Good Friday and like this and to celebrate the Lord's goodness. I will never forget the summer sitting outside. That was wonderful, but it is so good to be able to come in tonight and to join and to meet with you. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes on this Good Friday about why Jesus did what he did. A few years ago, Becky and I, while we were in Europe, we decided to go to Switzerland. And so we took a train and we rode through the Alps, some of the most beautiful country I'd ever seen as we made our journey to Switzerland. After we had boarded the train, there was a conductor that came through and the conductor was very friendly and very kind, wanted to know where Becky and I were from and what we were doing and know about our journey. We talked with them about that. And, but then he took our tickets and he gave us a receipt for those tickets and we had paid our way to be able to travel on that train. And I've often thought about that train ride and the beauty that we saw and when we got out at Switzerland and we stayed where we were going to be staying, I've often thought about what would have happened if somebody got on the train without a ticket because I didn't have to present the ticket to come in and get on the train. So when I made an inquiry about that, if you got on the train without a ticket at the next stop, and there were quite a few stops on the train ride, at the next stop you would be escorted off the train and the gendarmes would be there to meet you because you had tried to get on the train illegally. For you and I, we are on a train tonight, so to speak. 
But we're on a train, and we have a ticket that none of us could afford to purchase. None of us could afford to buy. And unlike the conductor who came by and wanted to know mine and Becky's name, wanted to know where we were from, and asking us about our country and our visit and our reason for being in Europe, this conductor knows your name, he knows everything about you, and he paid the price for you and I to be on this train tonight. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? He's the one that made the way. Years and years ago, I made friends with a very famous pastor who is now in heaven, but he had preached a sermon that went around the world called the Hellbound Train. And he talked about that Hellbound Train as people who, through their good works and people who, their neglect of the gospel, they had purchased their ticket to be on that Hellbound Train. This man pastored one of the largest churches in the nation, and I was so glad that he took an interest in me and talked to me about preaching. And, and by the way, he would just despise this little table that I used as a pulpit. He said, we need big pulpits for big sermons. And I know I would disappoint him with this little table tonight, but I hope he'll never be disappointed in this message. Because in his message, he talked about how that Christ, he was the one that paid. And no matter how much you worked and how much you earned, if you try to get on this train, this train called Christianity, this train of faith, and you try to purchase your own ticket, you try to buy your own way, you will never make it to heaven. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you read that out loud with me? I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I believe that passage of Scripture with all of my heart. I not only believe that passage, I trust that passage of Scripture with all of my heart. But believing that passage and trusting that passage doesn't do anybody any good until they first receive what Christ has done for them at Calvary. It is so important that you and I receive the gift of eternal life. A friend of mine called me yesterday, and he's not a Christian. As a matter of fact, he's from another faith altogether, and we've been building relationship. And he called me, and he says, how do I wish a Christian a happy Good Friday? How do I wish a Christian a happy Easter? And so I talked to him. I said, well, this is a perfectly appropriate way just to say happy Good Friday. It's happy Easter. But I said, can I tell you what Christians say to one another? And he goes, of course, I, I want to know. And I said, well, Christians will greet each other on Sunday mornings, but especially on Easter Day, we will greet one another and say, Christ is risen, and then everyone knows to reply, he's risen indeed. So can we say that? I know it's not Easter, but can we rehearse for Easter? Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Hallelujah. And yet, to get to Easter, we've got to go through the cross. We've got to go through Calvary. The cross is a sign of new hope. It's a sign of new beginning, and it's a sign of new life. You know, when you look at the cross and I look at the cross, that's what we see, new hope, new beginning, new life. That's what we rejoice in when we look at the cross. But if you really want to understand the cross, you must understand that when Jesus was hung upon that cross for your sins and my sins, the cross was a very cruel, torturous way to die. 
The cross was a painful way to die. And the reason the Roman soldiers used the cross, it was Rome's way of trying to strike fear into the hearts of people. Don't do this or this could happen to you. Most of you are familiar with the rebellion of Spartacus and how after the defeat of the slaves that the Romans, if I remember correctly from my study of history, the Romans for 60 miles, they put up a cross every so few feet and they crucified a slave. The birds of the air would pick at their flesh. They died and they hung while rodents would eat away at their bodies while they hung upon the cross. The cross was not a beautiful thing. So when Pilate put Jesus upon the cross, when Pilate had him crucified, the government was thinking, this is one more rebel I won't have to deal with. Let everybody fear. Let everybody know this is what happens if you violate what the government says. And the religious leaders, when they saw Jesus hanging upon the cross and those Pharisees and priests as they gathered at the foot of the cross, they would have thought, there, that takes care of that. He won't be bothering us anymore. He won't be driving anybody out of the temple. He won't be teaching these ridiculous things anymore. And I'm telling you, the demons of hell must have shook their heads and jumped up and down and rubbed their hands together, for they had killed God. This wasn't just the Son of God. Jesus was God. This is God in the flesh. They had killed God, and now Satan's diabolical and dark ambitions that I will exalt my throne above the throne of God. He probably laughed in hell thinking, there he is upon the cross. Now I will get my throne exalted. You and I, we look at the cross. There's a beautiful cross here to my left that brings to us hope. It's a sign to us of a new beginning. It's a sign to us of life. You and I buy crosses for one another, for jewelry. Men and women wear crosses. It's one of the most priceless and precious gifts that we give to other people because it represents something to us. And yet today, the cross is getting a lot of criticism in London in the year 2000, and this is up on the screen if you want to follow along with me, the National Gallery in London put on a millennial exposition, exposition saying, seeing salvation. That was a case in point, especially remembering that European countries tend to be f far more secularized than the United States. It consisted mostly of artists' depictions of Jesus' crucifixion, most critics sneered and all those old paintings about someone being tortured to death. Why do we need to look at rooms full of such stuff? But fortunately, the general public disagreed or ignored the critics and turned up in droves to see works of art which, like the crucifixion itself, seemed to carry a power beyond theory and suspicion. What is it about the cross that brings hope to us? I have just graphically, I could have told you more, but there are children in the room tonight and maybe children watching at home. I, I could have told you so much more about crucifixion and what happened to our Savior. So why is it that the cross brings such hope and it means nuts, such new life and new beginnings to you and I? The Bible says that first of all, Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that's important, friends. For oftentimes, the Old Testament 
brothers and sisters would overlook those scriptures of the suffering Messiah. They would overlook the scriptures of the suffering servant in Isaiah. They would overlook the scriptures of the suffering shepherd in the book of Ezekiel. When Paul was writing about this, he said, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. And when he said the scripture, he was talking about the Torah, the first five books of Moses. He was talking about the law. He was talking about the prophets and the wisdom literature. He was talking about what you and I call the Old Testament. That was the Bible. There were no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There were no pastoral epistles, and there was no book of Revelation. But Paul and the apostles and Jesus, they taught from the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer for our sins, as the Scripture said. And you say, why, Pastor? Why would God send his son? And I know that there are many today who are saying that is hateful, that God is a child abuser, that we're teaching that God is somehow or another abusing his son by sending him. That is a total misunderstanding of who God is and what the Bible says. It reveals an abysmal lack of ignorance on the part of what the Scripture says, and it is a desire to mold God into the image that we want Him to be in for ourselves. His desire to make God more palatable and more pleasing. What Jesus did was take upon himself, what God did was take upon himself your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world, the horror all of the abject poverty, all of the, all of the things that you could imagine tonight. Christ absorbed that in his flesh. You prepared a body for me for sacrifice. God gave us laws in this fallen world after Adam and Eve had, had sinned. God gave us laws to live by, and it's not that the law is bad. As a matter of fact, Jesus says the law is good. Paul says the law is good. It's not that the law is bad. The law is good. When you read the Ten Commandments, it tells you how to love God. It tells you how to enjoy God's presence. When you read the Ten Commandments, it tells you how to have a healthy marriage and a good marriage. When you read the Ten Commandments, it tells you how to tell the truth, how to be a good neighbor to somebody, a good citizen. It's not that the law is bad. It's just that no one keeps the law perfectly all the time. No one has ever been able to keep the law perfectly except for Jesus. Some of us keep them some of the time, but none of us keep them all of the time. As a matter of fact, some of us have favorite laws that we like, and we'll beat other people up with those laws because we're pretty good at keeping those laws, but we ignore the laws that we don't like. I was once invited to speak to a national conference of pastors and district leaders in Oklahoma and in Oklahoma, while I was teaching and speaking that night, there was a Q&A session. And after the Q&A session, I was sitting with some of these general council officials and district council officials from our denomination. One of them said this, and I will never forget it. He said, it's interesting how that we as Christians can find the laws that we love and keep them but we can ignore the laws that we don't love and never keep them at all. And you see, friends, it just goes to illustrate, it's not that the law was bad, the law is good. It's just that none of us keep it perfectly all the time. Jesus, when he was teaching the disciples who had lost hope because of this cruel death at Calvary, 
he came alongside of his disciples and he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me, look at this, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, how many of you would agree with me? Those are good books of the Bible right there. There's the law that tells us how to live. There's the Psalms that tell us how to worship. There are the prophets that call our hands when we do not keep the law. But then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer, die, and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations Beginning in Jerusalem, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. Say that with me. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. For all who believe the promise, for all who trust the promise, and for all who will receive the promise. That's how you can sum that verse up. And my prayer is that Christ will do for us tonight what he did for his disciples then. He would open our minds to understand the Scriptures Becky and I have been very fortunate to travel around the world, and we see crosses everywhere we go, and those crosses represent so much hope. Even in places where, the, where Christianity is the minority religion, you'll see a cross, and you'll see people there gathered in hope. It's interesting to me that in Africa and in Asia, when there are terrorist bombings, it's not that people run to a mosque. It's not that they run to a temple of Bali, but they run to that place that has the cross, for the cross is a sign of sanctuary. The cross represents new hope, new life, a new beginning, a promise that Christ has made to you and I. Trust the promise, believe the promise, and receive the promise. Can we give him another hand of thanksgiving tonight? But it's more than just forgiveness of sin. For Jesus Christ ended sin's control over those who follow him. Jesus Christ ended sin's control. Sin has no more authority or no more power over you and I. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, the law of Moses. Now, Jesus has just told us it's good. Paul has just told us it's good. God gave it to us so we know it's good. But the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. You say, what is our sinful nature? It's what every one of us inherited from Adam and Eve. It's that proclivity. It's that inborn nature. It's what David was talking about in sin I was conceived. Not talking about his parents' relationship being sinful. Talking about the fact that we were born with a sinful nature. But look at, let's read the rest of it. So God did what the law could not do. Now this, the law can tell you how to worship. The law can tell you how to be a good husband. The law can tell you how to be a good neighbor. Or the law can tell you these things. The law is a lamp and it's a light. But God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. See, what does that mean? That means that Christ took upon himself. That's what I mean. He condemned sin in the flesh. He took it upon himself. When we gather this evening, we're not just being maudlin. We're not just being sentimental. We are remembering that 
History was changed. The world was changed. Life was changed because what happened in Eden was being undone by the shedding of Christ's blood at Calvary. Somebody say, praise the Lord tonight. <laughs> Hallelujah. Enough with the talk, ladies, that when you get to heaven, you're going to have a long conversation with Eve. Enough with the talk, sir. When you get to heaven, you're going to have a long conversation with Adam. When I get to heaven, I want to have a long conversation and say to Jesus, you changed the world on Good Friday some 2,000 years ago. He took upon himself what we willingly gave him in the garden. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Christ who knew no sin, God who knew no sin, Christ fully satisfied the demands of the law. For those of us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. It just simply means that what God has done is in sin's control over me. Now, now, now listen, this is important. This is not cheap grace. This is not saying you can go out and live like the devil. I've quoted to you before what Martin Luther said, sin boldly. What Luther was not suggesting is that you go out tonight and get smashed or get hammered or be unfaithful. What Luther was saying was live your life freely. Stop worrying about somehow or another you're going to sin. Be bold. Live. If you sin, ask God to forgive you of your sins. But let me tell you something about sin. Let me tell you something you need to always remember and parents you need to teach your children. Before you sin, Satan always minimizes the temptation. He always minimizes. He always tells you nobody's going to know. It's not going to hurt. It's old-fashioned. It's prudish. But after you sin, he maximizes the sin's results in your life. And he comes along and he condemns you. And he makes you feel as though God doesn't love you anymore. He makes you feel as though somehow or another you are a hypocrite and you're far from God. He minimizes the temptation, but he maximizes the impact of the sin. Friends, tonight, Satan's control to tempt us, Satan's control to condemn us, Satan's control to separate us from the love of God, it is over. It is done with. The enemy has lost control of the church. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. Have you ever lost control of a car? Have you ever felt that car spinning around and flipping over? I have. Have you ever lost control of a situation or have you ever lost control of your child? I'm telling you tonight, hell is spinning in circles this evening when hell realizes that you and I understand he has no authority in this place. He has no authority in your life for you are a habitation and dwelt by the Spirit of God and covered by the blood of the Lamb. The cross is a sign of new hope, new life, and a new beginning. The third thing is that Jesus Christ erased my sins permanently permanently, never to be remembered against me again, never to be remembered. About two years ago, Becky and I were down in Georgia. We saw an old friend of ours, and he is a friend, a good friend, 
But he came up and he says, do you remember when you did this? And he brought up something silly that I had done. I said, boy, you have a good memory. He said, do you remember when you did this? Oh, that was the dumbest thing you've ever done in your life. And for the next 30 minutes until I finally had it up to here and I said, shut up. <laughs> you remind me of the devil. <laughs> Just brought up every dumb thing. How many of you have done some dumb things in your life? Can I see your hand? Can I say, the rest of you are lying through your teeth tonight. You can't take communion till you repent. We've all done dumb and stupid things. But Jesus never brings them up to us. He canceled out every legal violation we had on our record. And the old arrest warrant. I love the way that's, in some versions, it's the charges. I love the old arrest warrant that the devil had out on us. He erased all our sins, our stained soul. He deleted it all, and they cannot be retrieved. I called my son, and I said, son, if I wipe a computer, can information still be gotten off of that before I get rid of some old computer parts? He says, dad, there are ways to get it even if you wiped it. So I just took a hammer to it. <laughs> I beat the devil out of it. You know, I didn't want somebody to uncover, you know, credit card information or my journal information or stuff like that. It can never be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam had been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Then Jesus, look at this, then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his prisoner tonight. And what hell thought when Satan thought, I've killed God, when Pilate and the government thought, we've put him on the cross, we've gotten rid of him, when the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees thought, we've done away with him, they were Christ's prisoner because when Christ died for our sins, he not only canceled the arrest warrant, but he arrested the devil and the powers of hell tonight. Somebody give him another hand of praise this evening. That's what happened 2,000 years ago. It's why Jesus said, you will cast out evil spirits in my name. It's why Jesus says that the devil is subject to you. And then number four tonight, this is what Good Friday means, that Jesus Christ frees me from the fear of death and dying. Frees me from the fear of death and dying. When I first wrote this, I wrote the fear of death. I'm not afraid of death. But I sure do ask the Lord, when it comes my time, would you take me quickly? You know, when it comes my time, will you take me real quickly? I've sat with so many people who've suffered cancer and heart disease. I've wept with them. I've prayed with them, done everything could to comfort them. And somehow or another, as I sit before the Lord... I know that all that I've seen and witnessed in homes, holding a young man in my arms while he died painfully on the highway, Interstate 75, 
those that I've sat with in hospitals, those I've sat with in nursing homes and convalescent centers, things that sometimes I wake up dreaming about and remembering. And those of you that have sat through that process with a loved one, you know what I'm talking about tonight. Jesus frees us from that fear as well. You see, the reason I don't fear death is I know when I die, just like that, I'll be in the presence of Jesus. Just like that, I'll be in the presence of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when I'm in the presence of Jesus, I'm probably going to feel sorry for all y'all left behind. That doesn't mean I'm in a hurry to go. But that's what it means to be free from the fear of death. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. And then I read this passage from Hebrews chapter 2. We are people of flesh and blood. And that is why Jesus became one of us. He died to destroy the devil who had power over death, but he also died to rescue all of us who live each day in fear of dying. There is a place tonight that you can live in Christ where you not only don't fear death, but you don't fear the process of dying either because our Savior holds our hands all the way. And God walks with us. And then finally tonight, Jesus Christ has destroyed the devil's power. He's destroyed the devil's power. I get calls occasionally because people know that I believe everything that I'm preaching to you tonight. And I got a call saying, we think there's an evil spirit in our house. Would you come and cast that spirit out? Would you come and pray over us? I said, there's no need to do that. There's no need to do that. The devil's power is broken. Let me pray for you over the phone right now. I'm happy to come, but when I come, I'm not going around your house, you know, like Ghostbusters and trying to kick something out of your house. The devil doesn't want a house made out of stick and wood. He wants your house. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your body. He has no authority in this place. The only authority he have is what we give him when we sin. That's the reason he so desperately wanted Adam and Eve to sin. The devil is a defeated foe. It's why Christians in some parts of the world, they welcome death with singing. It's why some, some of our enemies in the world cut out their tongues. It's why some government officials don't want us to have the freedom to preach the gospel anymore. It's why there's a Supreme Court case working its way through right now to take away Title 14 funding to Christian colleges and seminaries and universities unless they agree to the dogma that the government wants them to agree with. It's why tonight we can never stand in fear of the government or in fear of religion or in fear of man or in fear of the dollar. We stand tonight in fear of one only, and that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who gave himself that whosoever would believe the promise, trust the promise, and receive the promise would be born again and have power and victory over the devil and every one of his enemies tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus said those words 
it is finished. Telelastame. Telelastame. It's one word, telelastame. Telelastame. It's that one word. It's so powerful. There are entire books written about that one word that Jesus said. And here's where I want you to go with me as we get ready to take communion tonight. When he said it's finished, Jesus is going all the way back. Remember, God is one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There in Genesis chapter 2, after God had finished creating this whole universe, and he said it is finished. And then the wicked one comes, and he leads Adam and Eve astray. And what God had finished, Adam and Eve gave away to the devil. And only one could undo what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Therefore, Paul calls him the second Adam. And Jesus, upon that cross, everything that Adam and Eve had given to the enemy, Jesus took the full price. He was our substitute. He was our substitute. His blood purifies us from all sins. You see, those who don't understand the Old Testament, they hate the bloody sacrifices. But you see, the blood was what was put upon the mercy seat. The blood was what purified. And Jesus' blood was what all those sacrifices were pointing to. You may not like it. You may be watching tonight and say, I despise this. Well, you're not in bad company. The devil despises it. Government despises it. And there are religions today that despise it. But there is nothing that can wash away your sins but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why wherever you go in the world and you see a cross, you see a place of sanctuary that says new hope, new life, new beginning. And so I'm asking you tonight to trust what he did for you. I'm asking you to believe what he did for you. And I'm asking you to receive what he did for you. We got on that train. The conductor was as pleasant and nice as could be. Matter of fact, the conductor came back later to talk to us. He said, I, I want to come to Detroit one day. I want to see where Corvettes are made. I said, well, they're not made in Detroit. They're made in Kentucky. And he says, then I want to go to Kentucky. But you see, if we were greeted because we paid our bill. But on this train, this train called the church, there's nothing you can do because tetelestime, it's already been done for you. How many of you left home tonight going, 
there's something not finished here that needs to be finished. How many of you are left work this week saying, I'm not finished with everything? How many of you have ever been in that place where you go, I just can't get everything done. I've got to get done. Jesus finished the work so you and I could go to heaven. Would you bow your heads tonight? Would you close your eyes? And if you've never asked Christ to come into your heart, the work's already been done. The price has already been paid. The conductor knows your name. The conductor knows everything about you. And he loves you tonight, my dear friend. So would you pray this prayer with me? Pray it at home if you're at home. Pray it here in the sanctuary if you're in the sanctuary. Say, dear God, I believe that you gave your son. I trust what Jesus said, that he must suffer and die and be raised on the third day for our sins. And I don't understand everything about it, but I receive you, Jesus, into my heart and life tonight. Take me, spirit, soul, and body. Give me a new life and a fresh start. And thank you that you love me and that you know me. For I ask this in Jesus' holy name, amen. And your heads are still bowed. But if you prayed that tonight, I'm asking you to email me or send me a text message. Let me know on Facebook or YouTube. You can email me at office at woodland.church or you can email me at pastor at woodland.church. I want to email you back. I want to pray for you. I want to send you something to help you. I won't add you to any list unless you request to be added to it. I won't come knocking on your door unless you want to visit. But I want you to know God loves you. And he's paid the price for you. 